Welcome to the Alberta Forage Industry Network Sustainable Forage webinar and podcast. We thank you for joining us and we hope you will enjoy this webinar presented by Dr. Edward Bork on an overview of work on integrated weed control in pastures. This presentation was on Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. If you'd like to see the video, it is on our YouTube channel, Alberta Forages, or you can download it on all the podcast platforms. If you're interested in becoming a member of AFIN, you can go to our website at albertaforages.ca. You can find out information about each month when we present a new series for our Sustainable Forages webinar and podcast series. We hope you will enjoy. My name is Edward Shaw. I'm the vice chair of AFIN. I've been asked to uh, uh, chair this uh, or this this meeting, and this is a second in a series. Uh, we are hosting them on the second Tuesday of each month. It will be available by podcast and uh, uh, released later for those people who want to review it or those people that weren't able to, to download it. Uh, tonight, we have Tamara, who's going to be the moderator of it and keep us on task. We've got Amanda, that is uh, the lady behind the scenes that keeps us all in order and keeps things working. And we have Saria, who's our chair, that's uh, here with us tonight as well. Our tonight our topic tonight is integrating herbicides, fertilization, rotational grazing for weed management pastures by Dr. Ed Boric. And uh, uh, with that, I will turn this over to Tamara to introduce uh, Dr. Boric, and uh, we'll go from there. So uh, you'll hear from me later on in the uh, in the evening. So um, I'll turn it over to Tamara. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I. I'm kind of blown away that I get to introduce Ed because he's quite quite the bio here. Um, he is the Mathis Chair in Rangeland Ecology and Management and Director of the Rangeland Research Institute at the University of Alberta. He has been teaching and conducting research for more than 25 years on basic and applied topics, including integrated weed control, grazing systems, fire ecology, forage production, agroforestry, forestry, and recently the role of rangelands in providing alternative ecosystem goods and services, including carbon storage, greenhouse gas reduction and biodiversity retention. That's pretty awesome in my books. Um, he has supervised 40 graduate students, including 11 PhD students, and he maintains close ties with the agricultural industry because he was just saying he's gonna seed his peas. So, I'm very excited to hear about this topic, um, especially the thistles. We struggle with that in our area, and I see it all over the province when I'm out and about. So I think this is going to be a really good topic, and I'm quite eager to hear it. So I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Tamara. Good evening, everyone. So as the title implies, I'm going to be talking about work that I've started all the way back in 1999. So I've actually been working on the topic of integrated weed control and pastures for almost 25 years. I started the U of A in 97 and I started this work basically a year and a half after I started at the U of A. So it's it's pretty well been one of my primary research programs. And even though I'm going to be focusing in on Canada thistle as a, a focal weed for a lot of this work. I, I guess my 
disclaimer up front would be to think about the principles that I'm going to cover and think about how you might apply some of the principles to managing any kind of weed that might be on your on your pastures. So it might be leafy spurge, it might be scentless chamomile, it might be tansy, um, it, it, it might be some other particular plant that you're concerned about. So think about how you would take these principles. And, and so even though I'm going to focus a lot on Canada thistle, um, I, I would encourage you to kind of think beyond that. So as I said, I'm, I'm going to focus in on integrated uh, control of Canada thistle in pasture. This is actually the, the, the photo in the upper right corner is actually one of our study sites up at Barhead uh, on the Pembina River floodplain. And this was a really nasty site, um, one of our first sites that we, that we dealt with. Um, I'm going to look at different strategies. I'm going to look at different strategies to deal with, with control, including the role of rotational grazing. So many people, when they think of weed control, they think of, well, how do you use herbicides and, and how do you do these more reactive methods of control? But I'm going to talk about the role of grazing itself as well. And interspersed in here, my research program on weed control has actually morphed to looking at where we've controlled where we've controlled hard to control broadleaf weeds like Canada thistle and pasture we know that we're often going to remove a lot of the beneficial legumes. And so I'm also going to throw in a sprinkle of some of the work that we're doing, looking at how do we get legumes reestablished and what's the return interval for legumes within some of these perennial pastures following, for example, we control with herbicides. So we have done some work on that and I'll share some of those results with you tonight. So this is another one of our study sites. This looks more like a cotton field from, uh, from Texas. And it actually happens to be um, a pasture that was in the Stony Plain area. This was back in 19, I believe it was the fall of 1998, just when we were getting going. And if you look at this pasture, well, about half the grazable area is dominated by Canada thistle, clearly. The, the plant has a very large biological footprint, but also it's conceivable to me, at least when I started, that that plant must be having a profound impact on not only forage production, forage availability, grazable area is probably about half in that pasture because of the abundance of, of, of that weed. So a little bit about Canada thistle. Many of you know this already, but I'll just review some of the background here. It's a very deep-rooted, long-lived perennial. Uh, and it has this extensive underground creeping root system. Some people call them rhizomes. They, they're not typically rhizomes, but they are a creeping root system, which allows it to spread laterally. It can spread three to four meters in one year. So if you have one plant, it can spread horizontally upwards of three to four meters. And then it basically just sends up new shoots. And you can see those new shoots coming up right here as it kind of spreads. So it doesn't take much to really allow a single plant or two to really colonize and form a very large thick stand in, in a short period of time. The, the problem with a plant is that even though it's not toxic, it has very low palatability to livestock. And so given a choice, cattle won't eat it. And that allows it to further spread. So that, you know, most of us that have worked in the garden and had to pull a thistle plant know that it has those prickles on it. The, the prickles are basically a way 
for the plant to protect itself from herbivory. It's a, it's a, it's a mechanism, a defense mechanism to prevent it from being eaten. But that also makes it very difficult to control in a pasture environment because it means that it's going to be challenging for cattle to utilize it. And it's actually very, very abundant. <coughs> a few years ago, there was a number of herbicide companies that did some did some basically market survey work. And basically in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, on pasture land in all three of those prairie provinces, thistle ranked as the number one weed on our pasture land. So it's very abundant, very problematic. And I, I'll also point out that because it's listed as a noxious weed, so it's a regulated weed, that means that if you have it on your property, you need to prevent it from spreading. And at a minimum, that means you need to prevent it from flowering and going to seed. So there is, there's a lot of compelling reasons to, to do something about this particular plant. So when we started our work in 1999, the very first question we asked is, does Canada thistle impact pasture for yield? And the reason why we asked this question is I had a number of producers not just producers, but people that work with Alberta agriculture that said, you know, the plant, it looks kind of ugly when you look at this, this pasture that we had here at Stony Plain. It looks ugly, but it, it really isn't doing much to the, to the forage yield. And I said that to, to me, that was inconceivable that, you know, knowing that plants are, must be competing for nutrients and moisture and light, that there must be an impact on forage yield. So I thought, let's start with that very basic question. So we did something that's called a, a yield loss assessment. It's basically looking at the empirical or quantitative relationship between the abundance of forage and the abundance of the weed. So we did this at eight different sites across central Alberta. And in this case, it's simply basically charting out the abundance of thistle. And in this case, it's the number of thistle plants per quarter square meter. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat. So when you look at these numbers here, on the far right side of the graph, the, the, the numbers around 30, those are roughly 120 plants per square meter. So that these are very high thistle infestations. <coughs> and at six of these eight sites, we found what's called basically a negative yield loss which is essentially a decline in forage biomass with increasing thistle abundance. And this basically corroborated the notion that if you have high th higher thistle populations, more density, more biomass, you're gonna, that's going to lead to greater decline in forage availability. Now, we, we also wanted to circumvent the notion that, well, within pastures, pastures can be really patchy, internally patchy. And if we had... A microsite that grows really good thistle, it might conceivably also grow good biomass of forage. So we also validated this by basically going in, once we'd figured out these yield loss relationships, like you see here, this negative relationship, we basically went in and sprayed them with clopyrrolid, which is a very effective uh, broadleaf herbicide at thistle control. And then we looked for a yield gain. And indeed, at all of these sites, we basically found the opposite happened. The more biomass of the weed we removed, the more we gained back in terms of forage biomass gains. And that's a good sign 
because it, it validated the notion that thistle doesn't just look ugly, it's actually having a very negative impact on your forage yield. Okay, that under the most extreme scenarios, our yield losses peaked at a ratio of one to two, which basically means if you have one kilogram per hectare of thistle, you're losing two kilograms of forage. That's a pretty formidable formula when you think about that, because it's it's not <coughs> it's not inconceivable to have a thousand pounds an acre or a thousand kilograms per hectare of thistle. And that means you'd be losing a couple thousand pounds per acre of forage or a couple thousand kilograms per hectare of forage. So that, 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 that's a worst case scenario, but it definitely shows the extreme negative effect that these thistle infestations can have on forage availability. Okay, not to complicate this too much, too much, but a number of years after we did the initial yield loss assessments, we did some further work to refine this. And we had two sites that we looked at. One was Lake Isle, which is west of Edmonton, and it was a, a floodplain that was a very nutrient-rich and moisture-rich environment. The other site was the Parkland Conservation Farm, so the PCF site, which is basically southeast of where I am, near the town of Mundare. And that's a, a dryland site, much lower rainfall, lower nutrient status. And we constructed what's called a structural equation model. All this structural equation model does is really look at total forage biomass. And this is what you can see over on the left side of each one of these diagrams. And the structural equation model basically tells us what's affecting total forage biomass. So for example, you can see that if you have more legumes, you have more forage biomass. There's a positive relationship with this, which is that 0.587. Now, th this is all fine, but the, the reason I'm pointing this out is that we found through these structural equation models, very, very different impacts at Lake Isle and the Parkland Conservation Farm. In the case of Lake Isle, we had high resources due to this floodplain environment. And we basically, if you look at the thistle biomass, a lot of these lines are dotted, which means there's no linkages basically to forage biomass. And in that case, from an ecological perspective, we can consider the Canada thistle a passenger in the plant community. It's just sitting there filling vacant niches or gaps within the grassland and is not really competing directly with our forage component, interestingly enough. However, at the Parkland Conservation Site, where we had low resources, so less nutrients, much lower water, because it's a dryland upland site, we had very high competition. And you can see that through these solid lines here, where thistle density is negatively impacting legume abundance, Thistle biomass is negatively impacting the graminoid abundance and the legume abundance. And in the process, it's reducing total forage yield. Now, here's the kicker with these two different sites is that when you look at the relative abundance of Canada thistle at these two very different sites. So here's the Lake Isle site. You can see that the peak total biomass productivity was six and a half thousand kilograms per hectare. So that, that's six and a half tons per hectare. 
huge biomass, but huge biomass of thistle that basically was not doing anything other than filling in vacant or empty niches within the plant community. But at the Parkland Conservation Farm, which was at Dryland site, it was a very small amount of thistle that was having a very detrimental effect as shown by that structural equation model. Here's the bottom line. Just because you have a lot of thistle does not necessarily mean that you're going to incur really large yield losses. It could be because of the microsite and the high nutrient and water availability. But even more important is if you have a dryland grassland where resources are very limited, low nutrients, low water availability, it does not take very much Canada thistle to actually cause a very significant yield loss. So pay attention to the, the type of pasture environments that your weeds are residing in. And if you have dryland grasslands in a highly competitive environment, it doesn't take much weed in order to lead to yield losses. So looks can be very deceiving. And the contrary is, if you, even if you don't have a lot of weeds, you might still be losing economically. Okay, so hopefully that kind of sets the table on, on the yield loss. So we then followed our work up with traditional kind of weed and feed of our uh, uh, type trials. These are straight up herbicide efficacy trials where we're basically trying to figure out, one moment here, I'm just gonna eliminate this, hide my, there we go, hide my panel, my uh, floating controls. So the, these herbicide efficacy trials are basically looking at, you know, what happens if we use different herbicides? What's the effectiveness of the con control we get? And how long does the suppression of the weed last? Uh, that, that was an important question because we wanted to look at one-time uh, uh, herbicide treatments. So we had a whole bunch of treatments set up at four different sites. This happens to be a Grazon P plus D plot at 3.7 liters per hectare. So Grazon has been around for quite a period of time. It's a mixture of 2,4-D and Picloram. And we also crossed all of our fertilization treatments or all of our herbicide treatments with either a fertilized area, which is in the foreground, or the back half of the plot was unfertilized. Now, why did we do this? We did this because we're testing something called the weed and feed effect, which is if you combine a herbicide with a fertilization regime, you should, in theory, get better we not only weed control, but also you'll get better long-term weed suppression because you're creating a more vigorous forage stand, which should help give you longer-term suppression as the weed tries to recover after the herbicide treatment. So I'm going to share some of these results with you. So this is the herbicide effectiveness, basically two months after treatment. And the treatments were always done at early bud stage. So this is just when the flowers are coming out. That's basically when these, these weeds have the lowest carbohydrate reserves and they're most susceptible to long-term damage. And so my graphs are set up. In this case, this is thistle biomass in kilograms per hectare. Across the bottom, we have the grazon uh, applied at uh, 3.7 liters. The lontrell, which is basically clopyrrolid applied, I believe it was at 0.6 liters per hectare. 
Dival DS, which was applied, I believe, at 3.25 liters per hectare, and then a very heavy 2,4-D ester treatment. 2,4-D ester is relatively inexpensive, and it's a the rate we tested was two and a half liters per hectare. We also put in a mowing treatment. The mowing treatment was simply put in there because if you remember what I said earlier, the minimum that a producer has to do if they have a field infested with thistle is prevented from flowering and going to seed. That's the minimum uh, regulatory obligation that a producer has. So we added a mowing treatment in there. And then these are the untreated checks. And all of the green bars are fertilized. The unfertilized are the blue bars. So first thing I want to point out, if you look at the check treatment where there's no herbicide applied, if you go in and fertilize without applying any herbicide for weed control, you are making the weed problem worse. So if you see here, the weed infestation went from a little over 1,300 kilograms per hectare all the way up to close to 1700. And that was a significant increase, which means if you go out and you think you're doing the right thing by fertilizing your pasture, but you've got an existing weed population, that weed is gonna rob you of many of your nutrients and it's gonna turn into a bigger infestation. It's gonna turn into a bigger problem. So out of all the herbicides, you can see that all of them were relatively effective. But this is two months after treatment. This is in the initial year of spraying. So it's not surprising that, that all of those were effective. And of course, mowing was also effective because we basically lopped the plants off at the base. Now, here's some visuals. I'll just show you some of these. Um, here's an untreated area, and this is a treated area beside it. And here's a side-by-side -side comparison of the Lontrell with the untreated. So we definitely add some big treatment differences. Um, out of the real results, the ones that are you're going to be more interested in, what are the long-term residual effects of a single application of herbicide, a one-time application? So this is important. It's a one-time application. We didn't spray every year. So this is two full growing seasons after a one-time treatment. The graphs are arranged exactly the same way, Grazon, Lontrell, Dival, 2,4-D, a mowing, and a check. And then this is thistle density. So this is the number of stems per square meter. So a couple things that jump out right away. The first one is the mowing was ineffective in leading to a long-term reduction. Basically, we're getting the same thistle densities as the untreated area. All of the herbicides led to some degree of residual control two years later. However, the Lontrell and the Grazon led to the lowest levels of thistle density two years down the road. Now, why is that? It's because both of those herbicides basically have residual soil effects. The, the, the active ingredients, picloram and clopyrrolid, are highly translocated down into the root systems. And then even after it's assimilated and, and does its job on the root system, some of that material, that, that, that biochemical will stay in the soil and it will continue to suppress the, uh, the, the weed down the road. And so that's why we get these the larger reductions from Grazon and Luntrell than more what we call systemic 
So contact herbicides like Divil, which is a mix of Mecoproc, Mecoproc, Dicamba, and 2,4-D, or the straight-up heavy 2,4-D treatment. Now, equally important, I want to point out the weed and feed effect. So we got a very strong weed and feed effect, which is where we combine fertilization with the herbicide treatment, you see that additional reduction. So this is the reduction, additional reduction from in 2,4-D, in Dival, and look at it in Lontrell and in Grazon. And this is a really important phenomenon because it means that if you make the decision as a producer to go out and control a hard-to-kill perennial weed like Canada thistle, and you, you match that or time that with a pasture fertilization treatment, it means you're going to get greater long-term suppression of the weed population. And that's strictly through a competitive imbalance that's created through fertility by fertilization, which basically makes your grasses more productive, larger leaf area, more canopy, larger root systems, and that make them more competitive and in turn suppresses the weed itself, which means you can make your herbicide not only more effective, but last longer. So that weed and feed effect is very important. So not only do you not want to fertilize if you're not doing any weed control into a pasture containing weeds. But if you are going to conduct weed control, you might think of a fertility regime in order to improve or bolster the effectiveness of weed suppression. Okay, um, and here's some visuals. So again, here's the untreated, there's the unfertilized, there's the fertilized. So that, that weed and feed effect is very much happening. Now, a question I often get is, okay, so I made the investment in a herbicide and I made the investment in fertilizer. Did I get more back? Did I get more forage biomass back? These are the forage biomass responses one year after treatment. So here's our check over here. And of course, we can see a big difference due to fertilization. Makes sense. And this was a complete fertilizer that we added, by the way. It was N, P, K, and S. It was a balanced fertilization treatment intended to eliminate all of the macronutrient deficiencies that might have been in the soil. But you can also see that where we got weed control with all four of the herbicides, we did indeed get a net increase in, in biomass production. In the case of the fertilized, we went from about five and a half thousand kilograms per hectare all the way up to close to 7,000. That's an increase of about 25%. But even in the case of the non-fertilized, where we didn't fertilize, even there, we went from about 3,000 all the way up to anywhere from 4,000 to 4,500. So we even whether we fertilized or not, in both cases, the addition of the herbicide for weed control actually led to a net gain in forage response. And I think that's something that's important to think about because... The, back to the how I started my talk, where I said that I was I was told even by some people in Alberta agriculture that, well, thistle looked bad out there in these pastures, but it wasn't doing anything. No, it is doing something. It's definitely competing against your forage base. And even if you don't fertilize, but you get control of that population, you can boost your forage availability. 
Okay, um, a number of years later, this was about 10, 12 years ago, we also did some work looking at two other bioactives, so two other herbicides that came out. One of them is aminopyrrolid, which is, a lot of you will know it as milestone, and then there's another one called aminocyclopyrrochlor, uh, which is a very similar um, type of, of uh, 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 herbicide, has a very similar kind of mode of action. And one of the other things that we noticed, and this is back to the Lake Isle and the Parkland Conservation Sites, where we also looked and were able to track the net yield gain that we achieved by, by removing weeds. And in both of those cases, at Lake Isle, you can see the jump in forage productivity where we sprayed, and you can also see it at the Parkland Conservation Farm. So again, this just reinforces the notion that if you think the weeds are not doing anything in your pasture, they are. They're definitely doing something. So not only are they reducing forage uh, availability, which is accessibility to the animals, but they're also outright reducing their yield, something to think about. Okay, I, I, I want to take a little bit of a detour here, and I want to talk about legume sensitivity to herbicide, because Many of these bioactives, including picloram, clopyrrolid, aminopyrrolid, and amino, uh, aminocyclopyrrochlor, all of them will have a very negative impact on your legumes. They will most definitely remove your legumes. So a number of years ago, we actually tried to do some assessments of how long does it take for the herbicide levels to drop down in concentration in the soil so that we can actually get legumes reestablished. And, and that might be just legumes naturally recovering from the seed bank if you're west of Edmonton. You, know, you have lots of white clover and alcite clover and they might naturally come back. But you also might wanna interseed, for example, alfalfa, overseed or interseed, sod seed or something like that. And what we did, because there were no guidelines for Alberta, we actually did our own studies and we looked at simulated half rates or half-lives. Half-life is basically the length of time that it takes a herbicide to for half of its activity to be lost in essence. And so if we look at the full recommended rate, here's the recommended 100 per, uh, 100% 100 rate of the registered rate. And then this is one half-life of 50%. Here's a second half-life of 25%, a third half-life of 12.5%, a fourth half-life of 6.25%, and then these are the untreated. Here's the bottom line. Actives like aminopyrrolid, aminocyclopyrrochlor, I suspect picloram, and maybe even clopyrrolid are very potent and will have a very significant impact. Even rates as low as 6%, relative to the registered rate in the soil led to a reduction in this case in alfalfa density. So we were, in this case, we overseeded with alfalfa and then looked at following these different rates, simulating different half-lives, trying to figure out what impact do those half-lives have. And our conclusion was that uh, at least in, in, in the Northern temperate grasslands that we have here in Alberta, our legumes are very, very sensitive. Even 6%, six and a quarter percent of the registered rate 
the one X rate led to a reduction in alfalfa and clover density. So something to think about. Now, the other thing you might be wondering about is how long does it take for that to occur following spraying? We answered that one as well. And I don't know if I have that in here. I believe I do. I think it's coming up. But the bottom line is, I believe it took, yeah, here it is. So we actually looked at full rate applications in Alberta as well, and then looked at how long does it take for these legumes to come back? And we were quite shocked to find that where we applied the 1x rate, which is the recommended registered rate, if you go and buy the product and apply it, even after 26 months in the field, we were still seeing a reduction in legume emergence. Now, what's interesting about this, most of the studies that have looked at aminopyrrolid and aminocyclopyrrochlor, looking at half-lives, they're from Kentucky, they're from Tennessee, they're from Texas, they're from the Carolinas, and their half-lives are much, much shorter. In many of those studies, 10 months or 12 months or 14 months after spraying, they could reestablish their legumes, not in Alberta. And that's probably because of our short growing season. We have very limited breakdown and it's microbial breakdown of those herbicides that you're basically, it becomes a waiting game. And unlike Kentucky, where that might occur in 10 to 14 months, you need at least 26 months before you can get legumes reestablished. So if you apply these bioactives, you are going to be waiting for quite a period of time before you can <coughs> either expect to get legumes naturally recovering, or you're going to, you, you shouldn't even be thinking about overseeding with legumes to get them reestablished until at least 26 months, if not 30 months or longer. Okay, we also did some herbicide wiping trials. Now, herbicide wiping trials. So this is a weed wiper where you basically put a concentrated solution of herbicide in this container at the top and it runs down and it super saturates this sponge. And then you basically, you, you can put this on a quad, you can put this on a front end loader on a three point hitch. And then you basically drive over the infestation. The idea is you're not broadcast spraying Instead, you're wiping the product directly onto the taller statured weeds. You can see the thistle plants here. This sponge will basically wipe the herbicide directly onto the, onto the weed. So in theory, it's a more targeted way of applying a herbicide. Now, when we started, we did, we did two wiping trials. The first one was with Roundup, which is glyphosate. Now, might be wondering, why did you use Roundup? We used Roundup because it's the only product that actually had a label recommendation for wiping. And the, and the recommendation was 33% concentration. That's a really potent concentration. So it means one part Roundup to two parts water. So it's a very high concentration. And you can see this is about two months after treatment. It certainly is having an impact. Here's the untreated check. We followed this up with a much more interesting trial where we compared the, the check, the untreated with a Roundup at 33% concentration. And we wipe with either Dival DS, which is a con that mixture of Mecaprop, Dicamba, and 2,4-D, Lontrell, which is called Pyrrolid, or Grazon, which is that Picloram together with 2,4-D. 
And when we started this work, we went to the herbicide companies and we said, what label rate should we use for Grazon, Lontrell, and Dival DS? Because nobody had done this before with these products and it wasn't on their label. They said, we have no idea. And we really can't make a recommendation. We're not sure what to do. So I said, fine, I'm gonna get retail costs for all of these herbicides and I'm gonna do a cost equivalent concentration cost equivalent. So remember the roundup was 33%. So one part roundup to two parts water. In comparison, Lontrell was a very expensive product. The concentration was 2.3%. 2.3. And I don't remember the Grazon and Dival off the top of my head, but I'm thinking the Grazon was around 5%. And I believe the Dival was around 8 or 10%. Just to give you an idea. So these were all cost equivalent concentrations. And then we went and wiped. And then we looked at the thistle response. And here's what's interesting. So here's our checks. And this is data from 2000, one-time treatment. So this is residual effects in 2001, 2002. You can see the thistle population is just slowly increasing. Um, if you look at the herbicides, all of them led to very similar effectiveness in year one. All of them. Okay. Really no difference in terms of, the, of the, the, the magnitude of the reduction in thistle density. In year two, we're starting to see a little bit of segregation where the Grazon and Lontrell are, were having a little bit of a better reduction. Now, did that continue into 2002? No, it did not. Although the trend is still there. Those of you that remember what happened in central Alberta in 2002, We'll recall that that was the worst drought on record. Um, it still is, in my book anyways, worse than the drought even that we got a few years ago. Uh, th this was an extreme drought here at my place, northeast of Edmonton. We had wheat yields that were between 7 and 15 bushels an acre. Uh, never seen anything like that uh, since, since I can remember. And uh, I've never seen anything like that since, and I hope I never do. So... This was an extreme drought condition, which is why I believe we didn't really see the full segregation and the significant differences, but the pattern is still there. Now, what's equally important here is that we also quantify the grass and forage yield responses. This is one year post-wiping. This is the second year. Now, this is the effect of the drought. So you can see that there's this large decline where all the yields went down by about 40, 50%. And of course, there was no differences in that drought year, 2002. However, one year after wiping, really interesting effect, because what we did see is that the check was yielding basically the same amount of forage production as the Grazon, Lontrell, and the Dival DS. The only one that was lower was the Roundup. And the reason for that is because even though, in theory, you have grazing preceding your wiping treatment, which in theory, in theory, you need enough grazing pressure to make sure that there's no grasses embedded within these thistle uh, stands. If you have any grasses embedded in there and you apply glyphosate to those grass stems, you are gonna get translocation down and very significant grass mortality. And indeed, that's exactly what we saw right here. We saw about a 40 to 50% reduction 
in the amount of forage biomass. And it was strictly because it doesn't matter how much grazing pressure you have leading up to the wiping, as long as you get a certain amount and even a trace amounts of chemical onto a few grass plants, it can have a very negative impact on the understory. So based on this, if someone ever comes to me and says, would you recommend wiping? Yes, I would, but I would never recommend with glyphosate. I would recommend with Grazon on Lontrell or one of these other products at a very low concentration works just as good, if not better, with the added benefit that there will be no grass mortality because those bioactives do not target graminoids. They don't affect grasses. So it's a basically a win-win. You get weed control without reducing any of your forage yield. Okay, going to switch gears now. So uh, a big part of what I've also been working on is asking questions about how rotational grazing influences our pasture weeds. So just a review to kind of go through this, because I think it is important. When we look at the mechanisms of how grazing and how herbivory affects our pastures in terms of the plants that are there, their plant composition, there are two effects and they're both really important. One is a direct effect. So when a cow comes along, it munches off leaf area and the reduction in leaf area, the reduction in the number of growing points and the decline in the vigor of the defoliated plants has an impact. And, and there's also environmental changes, things like a reduction in litter and soil drying, all of that has an impact. But there's also an indirect effect. The indirect effect is the fact that if animals defoliate one plant, so let's say all your forage grasses, but they leave the thistle over time, then what happens, the thistle plants have access to more water, more sunlight, more nutrients, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that indirect effect is really a competitive shift, which favors the non-defoliated plants. And of course, thistle, with all those you know, with all those barbs and thorns, it's protecting itself and trying not to be eaten. So the actual vegetation changes that we see in our pastures is the sum effect of those direct effects, what the cows are actually consuming, plus these indirect effects. So in our work, we try to parse apart, separate the direct from the indirect effects. And to think about this another way is understanding that all grazing animals are very selective and that selectivity occurs across multiple scales. So these cows are making decisions all the time. Am I going to feed at the top of the hill, the mid slope or the bottom of the hill? Similarly, they're picking the plant community. So these cows have to decide, am I going to graze in this grassland, this shrubland, this forest or maybe the wetland that's next door? And even at the plant level. So this is a, a plant community in the Cypress Hills. This is all shrubby sink foil. It's not very palatable. Animals don't want to eat it. And you can see that the cattle are grazing all around on the grasses, but they're not touching the sink foil. So if you have that selective defoliation going on at the plant community level, eventually these sink foil plants are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So we asked the question, when you think about weed control, for example, Canada thistle control, is there a role for rotational grazing? And are all rotational systems equal in terms of how they mix and match the direct and indirect effects? 
and 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 align with what your forage grasses need to maximize their regrowth with how the weed does. That's basically what we're we're wrestling with. So part one of our work, where we tested the indirect role of defoliation. So this is this interspecific competitive shift. And yes, that is me actually doing some clipping. It's not just graduate students. I do get out there once in a while. Um, and in this clipping study, we did selective defoliation of all the non-thistle herbage at different intensities and frequencies. So we pretended we were cows, basically. We said, okay, if we're a cow and we leave this plant and we just graze everything around it, like a cow would ordinarily do, doesn't want to touch that plant, what happens to this plant? Does it get bigger? Are there more of them? Do they start to take over the stand? And we also cross those different treatments with fertilization and non-fertilized conditions. So we wanted to look at high fertility, low fertility to see whether there was a further interaction. Now, in, in hindsight, I'm gonna show you the data in a moment. There was no role of fertility. The ranking among the treatments was identical. Okay, and, and that was regardless of, of whether we fertilized or not. So here's our fertilization. Here's our fertilization treatments. Oh, not sorry, not the fertilization. Here's the, the defoliation treatment. So we, we had a deferred or check treatment where we didn't touch the forage. We just let it go through till mid-August. You know, it grew happily away. And then we looked at basically how much biomass was there. The Armageddon treatment is at the other end, which is what I call the continuous defoliation treatment, where we were regularly defoliating all the forage, excluding the thistle. Remember, we clipped around it in each plot all summer, every two weeks at two centimeter stubble height, beginning in mid-May. So we basically pretended we were a cow coming back and grazing over and over and over on the grasses, but left the thistle plants alone. The other two treatments, the short duration and the high intensity, low frequency, basically just represent different, different formulations, if you like, of rotational grazing. In the case of the short duration, we defoliated forage every two weeks. So same frequency as the continuous, but at a much higher stubble height, 10 centimeters or four inches. And so we were essentially high grading the pasture. So we were pretending we were cows just taking off the upper leaves and leaving all the lower leaves. So in theory, the grasses should be more competitive, in theory. And then we had a high intensity, low frequency treatment where we defoliated the forage every six weeks, but at two centimeters. So we basically, in this treatment, we clipped very aggressively. We took off most of the biomass but we gave them a long recovery period, six weeks, a month and a half before we came back in and clipped again. Now, what happened? So this is the accumulated forage biomass harvested. So this is just looking at how much forage, the good stuff, did we remove under those different treatments. So there's the graminoids or the, are the, uh, on the left here, the, the broadleaf dicots. So things like dandelion and all the other stuff is over here on the right. We don't even have to worry about that too much. It was a minor component. But here's what's interesting. The, here's the ranking of the treatments. So the continuous are the green bars. 
the the deferred treatment or the check where the the plants grew uninter they they weren't defoliated till the end of the summer they led to the most biomass and that was true regardless of whether we fertilized we were getting about somewhere around 3250 kilograms per hectare or we didn't fertilize where we were getting about 1750 but interestingly enough out of all these treatments the one that led to the lowest forage accumulation was the continuous treatment. Remember, two centimeters every two weeks. So stress, 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 regular frequent stress on those plants. And you can see we lost about 60% of the biomass under fertilization and under non-fertilization, same thing. Now, it, of course, it's not an option to defer till August. We can't do that all the time. Many times we have to graze during latter part of May, June, and July, and early. We need to graze. What are animals going to survive on? They need to eat something. So between the two rotational treatments, there was a very definite preference where the HILF outyielded the short duration. So if you look at the rank here, here's our deferred. Here's the HILF, and it was basically superior in providing more forage accumulation than, for example, the short duration. And remember the regimes. High-intensity, low-frequency was clipping to two centimeters, but every six weeks, whereas the short duration was every two weeks, but to 10 centimeters. So here's the bottom line. It's actually more important that you give your pastures a long rest period after you graze them. And if you can get pulses of grazing into a relatively short period of time, it's the length of the recovery period that really sets the tone for forage biomass accumulation. It's actually more important than the intensity of the tree. Now, why is that? I, I can tell you why. Because grasses, by and large, are very grazing tolerant. They have evolved for thousands of years to be grazed, and they're very adept at regrowing given an opportunity. What hurts them is when they're grazed over and over in short order, and they're not given enough ample time to be able to recover. So that's why you get this ranking where the check is the highest, the HILF is second, the short duration is third, and the continuous, what I call the Armageddon treatment, is the worst. And that ranking exists regardless of fertility. Now, take a good look at this graph, because I'm going to flip right away to the thistle data. And remember, we did not clip the th thistle. All we did is measure it, because we pretended we were a cow that was leaving the thistle alone. So there's the thistle data. And it's the exact opposite pattern, exact opposite. The thistle biomass data is on the left. The thistle density data is on the right. I had to multiply them by 10 in order to scale them for the graph. But by and large, the rankings are absolutely the opposite. So where we stressed the forage the most, we got the least forage accumulation, but we have the most thistle biomass and the highest thistle density. So we definitely made the problem worse by implementing a continuous grazing system. In contrast, the deferred led to the lowest thistle biomass, both under fertilized, fertilized conditions, non-fertilized conditions. And again, you can see 
the thistle density at the lowest. And among the two rotational treatments, the intermediate ones, the HILF led to better suppression, interestingly enough, it led to better suppression, as you can see here, relative to the short duration. So what this leads us to conclude is that, can we manipulate thistle populations by changing our rotational system? Yes, absolutely. Can we change thistle populations by increasing the vigor and regrowth of our grasses by giving them a lengthened rest period? Yes, we can. Not only do we get more biomass yield of our good stuff, but we actually get more thistle suppression. So that's the bottom line from these data graphs. And they're very compelling because, again, look at the two. They're a total inverse of one another. So here's a visual of them. Uh, so here's the deferred. We see lots of graminoids in here, lots of grasses, very productive. Here's the HILF. Here's the um, short duration, which you can also think of as low intensity, high frequency, so the short duration. And here's the Armageddon treatment, the high intensity, high frequency. So this is clipping every two, two weeks to two centimeter, very high stress conditions. Okay, so this is where things take, again, a bit of a turn. So in phase two, we wanted to test the direct impact of rotational grazing. Because when we put animals into a pasture, there is a chance that they will utilize some of this thistle if we stock at a high enough density. Because stock density and what we call grazing pressure is a very important effect that can alter animal behavior. In other words, can we force cattle to actually graze on thistle? And so we did that. We had four locations in Alberta where we work with producers to compare continuous grazing. We implemented high intensity, low frequency and short duration grazing using those same regimes over a three year period from 2000 to 2002. Again, remember the 2002 was that drought year. So it was a very, very dry year. Uh, in the foreground here, this is an HILF paddock shortly after grazing. Um, it, it looks like hell. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. We hit 70 to 80% utilization in three to four days. We used electric fencing. Uh, we, we, we usually baited the animals in there with a little bit of oats. And then we juiced that fence and we left them in there for three to four days. And we hit 7 to 80% utilization. And when they were done, we kicked them out and we gave it a six-week recovery period. Now, what, what's phenomenal is the regrowth that we saw because all of the use occurred in a very short period of time. We saw incredible regrowth, very, very quick regrowth in that six-week period. So let's look at our thistle populations. Here's year one. Even in year one, we're already starting to see a decline in thistle density. So our, our continuous grazing plots were around 35 plants per square meter. At the end of year one, we were already down to about 10 in the high intensity, low frequency. The short duration was in between. We just didn't have the stock density within the short duration because we're not forcing them to take off more of that biomass. Our utilization under the short duration was only about 40%, not 70 to 80 as it was under the HLF. Year two, it we got further segregation. Again, here's our check. 
or continuous. Here's the HLF. We're now down to five plants per square meter. By the end of year three, we'd all but taken out the thistle. We were down to about two stems per square meter, and they were usually little tiny rosettes that were just barely trying to compete and hang in there. This is a comparison of high intensity, low frequency on the left and short duration on the right. When we started, this thistle population went right across. When we finished three years later, the, these cattle had grazed out the thistle. It was gone. It, it was quite remarkable um, at, at what they had actually done within those areas. Um, we, we still had a nagging question all through this work. Well, we know that the thistle declined, but why? How much of it was due to trampling? So maybe they were just trampling it and simulating mowing due to their high densities, or was it actual defol defoliation? So was there forced consumption of thistle? And the answer is there was forced consumption because we quantified it. So in the continuous grazing treatments, it was almost exclusively the graminoids, so the grasses that were consumed. We got a little bit of thistle consumption within the short duration treatment, but under the HLF, cattle were eating upwards of one and a half tons per hectare of thistle in the first year of grazing. They weren't happy with us, I'll tell you that. Um, they, they, they usually moved into the, the, the paddocks very readily, and then they would eat all the graminoids in day one and two. And then in day three, they'd look at us and go, can't we leave now? And we'd go, no, you're not done. It's, it, you know, it's kind of like you know, telling your child to eat their broccoli. They can't leave the table or their Brussels sprouts. Well, that's what we did. And eventually they turned on and they ate the thistle and we quantified it. They ate upwards of one and a half tons per hectare of thistle under the HLF treatment, which directly led to that reduction. So, then we even went a step further, because remember our study, our rotational treatments ended in 2002. And we thought, well, maybe it's just a cosmetic change. What if, what if we just let these producers all go back to continuous grazing and maybe the thistle will all just come back? So we actually took down our treatments and we let them go back to doing what they're, they were doing, their business as usual, which was typically continuous grazing. And then we went back and measured shoot density, the thistle density in 2003, there was basically no thistle in the HLF treatment. Now remember, this was a year after drought and drought is maybe the single best cure-all for thistle because thistle likes to have lots of moisture. But you can see that in the HLF, we got no recovery and there was still thistle plants showing up after the drought year in both the short duration and the continuous treatments. And best of all, we actually saw this net increase in forage production, which again goes back to corroborate that yes, thistle is having a negative impact on your forage yield. It's clearly showing up as a negative influence because when we removed it here, we're getting a net in increase in the amount of forage production. Okay, so bottom line is grazing absolutely provides another important control option, both through direct means, through direct consumption, but you got to use one of these HILF systems where you're forcing them to, to defoliate the thistle and indirectly by what the animals are doing by shifting the, the competitive relationships within the community. So if they're consuming these grasses, they're leaving the thistle. And this grazing is really important in areas where maybe we can't use herbicides. For example, this is a wetland. 
This is a, a perimeter area of a wetland. You know, where these are areas where you sh absolutely should not be using herbicides in there. There are strict guidelines on where you can use herbicides. And so there are a number of producers that I've worked with that have used this very effectively to get control of their thistle in their riparian zones. Um, I want to talk about rotational grazing in general, because there's something called the grazing optimization hypothesis, which is this idea that that if you have some intermediate or moderate level of grazing that you actually can facilitate more growth on your plants. And there is evidence for that. And in fact, we've done some experimental work on this. This is the, a biomass and crude protein yield of uh, a brome, smooth brome Kentucky bluegrass stands that are basically clipped at different heights. So this is looking at different intensities. And what we see here is that the moderate defoliation treatment actually is out yielding both the lighter treatment and the heavier treatment. This is some evidence of the grazing optimization hypothesis. And we've found this in quite a few studies that we've actually looked at. I wanna talk briefly about what I think is a very um, unheralded study, but it, I, I found it very valuable. This is Peter Walton who used to be the forage scientist at the U of A retired back around 19, 1980 or so. And he did some work at Kinsella comparing rotational and continuous grazing on tame pasture. So these are seeded pastures. Uh, here's his data from 1975 through to 1978. These are average daily gains in kilograms per hectare. So individual animal performance. And what's really interesting here is that in three of the four years, the rotational grazing led to higher gains, individual animal gains, which is astounding for two reasons. The first one is that stocking, usually rotational grazing leads to greater herd gains, so overall aggregate herd gains, but lower individual animal gains. This is very unusual to see higher individual animal gains under rotational grazing. And it's because continuous grazing leads to high selectivity by animals. So usually it favors individual animal gain. So that was a surprise. But the other thing is, what's even more astounding is that in the work that Peter Walton did, the stocking rates in the rotation were 12 to 43% greater than under continuous grazing, which makes it even more astounding that in three of the four yields years, he got greater individual animal weight gains. So we can ask ourselves, why did this occur? Why did this anomaly happen when you look globally at all the studies that show that should never happen? Well, it isn't until you look at what happened in terms of the pasture forage composition. So he also quantified the abundance of alfalfa, smooth brome, creeping red fescue. And what's really clear is the rotational grazing, even though they stocked at a much higher level, 12 to 43% higher, <coughs> they were able to maintain greater biomass yields of not only smooth brome, but more importantly, alfalfa. And of course, we know that alfalfa is very high quality. So in this case, it, it's not much of a surprise now as to why three of the four years led to greater individual weight gains under rotational grazing. 
even despite the higher stocking rates. It's because the rotational system was able to conserve the most important and productive forage species, particularly alfalfa. So if you think about trying to maintain grazing sensitive and really productive plants that you wanna maintain over time, rotational grazing is the way to do it. And so there's that added benefit. And not many people talk about this study, but I, I, I really do think it's a really important one. Okay, I'm gonna finish up with two last data slides. So we've done some work looking at different combinations of grasses and, and legumes and, and, and how they contribute to different forage yields. Now, these are, these are peak yields and this is not under grazed conditions. So it's not like there's animals involved here. But I want to share some of these results. <coughs> so we look at mixtures of meadow brome alfalfa, meadow brome clover, meadow, uh, smooth brome alfalfa, and smooth brome clover. And in all of these cases, the alfalfa mixes out yielded the clover. That's not surprising. But what was interesting is that as little as 22% legume at seeding was needed to maximize crude protein yield. So crude protein yield is, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it's an aggregate measure of not only biomass, but protein availability. So if you take your biomass and you multiply it by the crude protein concentration, you get this aggregate measure, which should contribute in theory to animal production. And so we looked at everything from 100% you know, pure, pure legumes to 50%, down to 25%, down to even lower. And what was interesting is it only took about 22% legume in the initial seed mix to maximize crude protein yield. And you can see it went up very quickly. And for the, for the forage mixes involving alfalfa, basically we got very high crude protein yields. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because Let's say you want to go out and establish a new pasture or even a new hay field. And if you put in 15 pounds an acre of seed, you only need about four pounds per acre of legume. You really don't need that much. Now, if you want to boost it up a little bit to five or six pounds, that's fine. But you definitely know, don't need a, an enormous amount of alfalfa. We, and you can see these values very quickly at 22% and certainly at 25% we basically got max protein yield. The other thing I want to point out is, and, and again, we were kind of, this was some of the work looking at legume recovery and some of these legume dynamics. We found some really interesting things in terms of how our mixed forage swards evolved over time. So we, we sampled these, these stands for up to five years. So this is a first year seeding, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, <coughs> what we found is that it didn't matter how much legume we initially put in. That after five years, all of these stands really converged to somewhere around 25% of the forage sward, in essence. Now, give or take 15%. So even the pure grass monocultures eventually got invaded by legumes and eventually wound up with about 10%. That's its bottom line. So there's no legume seeded into this. But the ones that were seeded at 100%, you know, they hit 90 in year two, but by year four, they were already down to about 70. 
And by year five, they were all the way down to 45. So you basically got grass, volunteer grasses establishing within those mixes very, very quickly. So this is just, you know, kind of a, a testament to how dynamic some of these forage stands are. And even if you see pure legumes, you're going to see grass invasion. And in the case of if you don't want any legumes, you're probably going to get legume invasion, at least if you're in a moister part of the province where you've got, you know, things like alcite clover, white clover, they're going to volunteer, they're going to come in. Many of you know this already. We have very high legume populations in many of our natural and native pastures. Okay, so some general conclusions. I've thrown a lot of information at you. Hopefully, I've been able to tell a bit of a story. So if there was no, no, if you had a doubt before, hopefully there's no doubt now that, that these pasture weeds like thistle reduce your forage availability, forage yield, forage quality, particularly in highly competitive, which are low resource environments. Thinking back to Lake Isle versus Parkland Conservation Farm. You have a very arid environment, dryland environment, that, that's a difficult environment for a plant to make a living in. And in those environments, weeds can be much more damaging. Combining herbicides with fertilization provides effective long-term, not only weed control, but also fertilization alone increases the weed. So if you're just gonna go out there and fertilize and you've got a weed problem, you're not doing anything about it, you're gonna make the weed problem worse. Uh, residual herbicide effects from things like aminopyrrolid, aminocyclopyrrochlor, they can last up to 24 months here in central Alberta. You need to be aware of this. So if you're going to apply one of these more potent herbicides that have pretty significant residual properties, do not expect legumes to return either from the volunteer soil seed bank or through overseeding. You might even have to wait into the third growing season. Specialized grazing systems can be very useful in increasing forage production while helping control the weed. And in this case, turning Canada thistle into an actual forage supply source. So we actually got cattle to consume it. Now, one caveat here is you would never, I would never recommend this if you're trying to control a poisonous plant. Do not do this because you are overriding the animal's aversion. So it's natural tendency not to consume that plant. In the case of thistle, we actually quantified the forage quality on thistle. There's a reason why thistle has the thorns because the forage quality on young for, uh, thistle plants is upwards of 18 to 20% protein. Digestibility is also sky high. So, there's a reason why it's trying to defend itself because it's actually good forage quality otherwise. And there's no, there's no poisonous, um, th there's no, you know, poisonous compounds in it. You would never try to use rotational grazing or mob stalking to get forced control of a poisonous plant. That would be um, not good because then you would be forcing poisoning on your animals. Pasture dynamics are complex, including the legume dynamics. They depend heavily on grazing practices, particularly the length of the recovery period is really important. The species identity is important and we control measures, even the ecocide conditions, whether it's a dryland or a really nutrient rich, moisture rich site. Um, adaptive management is important. So every year is going to be different. Uh, I often joke that if you want the best cure-all 
for a thistle infestation, um, then you want drought for two or three years in a row. Of course, we don't want drought two or three years in a row, but drought naturally takes care of thistle. But then when it get, gets wet, it comes right back. So if you have an integrated management plan in place, you can keep it at containable levels all the time on a long-term basis. Um, there's lots of people contribute to this. Dan Cole and Alan McCauley, some of the early work, and Jerry Ellert. I had lots of funding organizations that have contributed to this um, over the years, and lots of graduate students have also helped me out on this. So uh, hopefully this was something that was useful to you. I'm happy to take comments or questions or revisit anything you'd like to talk about. Thank you, Dr. Bork. That was really, really interesting. Um, I've got quite a few notes here, and um, I really thought it was interesting, the slide that showed the thistle growth and the grass growth. That was pretty pretty cool, the inverse. Um, but you do have one question from Grant. He was wondering what type of clover, and I believe it was about three slides back. Yeah, so it, in the case of the clover, we actually, we were trying to emulate what you find in a lot of our our, our naturalized grasslands or even the tame pastures where you get a lot of volunteer clover establishment. So I, I deliberately called it clover on purpose because we use the mix of white clover and alcite clover, which is very, very common through a lot of the foothills, um, boreal region, and even the parkland region. In my area here, we have lots and lots of alcite clover, especially. And then in other areas that you get west of Edmonton, it's white clover. So we actually had a shotgun mix of both of them on purpose in there. Awesome. Thank you. That's a great answer. Um, if anybody else has any other questions, you can put them in the chat, or I think you can raise your hand and unmute. Um, I did have one question that you might have answered, but I might have missed it. Um, what was your stocking rate on the high intensity one on the grazing? So I, I'm not going to give you a stocking rate because it's going to vary depending on where you are. Okay. But uh, we did quantify the utilization. So actual biomass removal and we were hitting 70 to 80% in there. Now, that, so I, I'd rather give you that than a stocking rate because if you try this at Bonneville as opposed to Barhead or Drayton Valley or Stetler or Camrose, the stocking rate will be different because it will be, depend on how much forage you have to begin with. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other question I had for you, if nobody else got any questions, um, as did you use different classes of animals and did you notice any different behavior with the different classes and the thistle? Now, that's a really good question. I have, I, no, I don't believe, I believe we use whatever was available. And to be honest, I don't know whether they were all cow-calf or whether there was maybe uh, at least one location up by, Barhead, I believe, may have, may have had yearlings. I did not, I, I can't answer that question. That's a really good point. Um, there is, I will mention, there's work out of Montana, and there's videos, some of you may have heard about it before. There's a video called Cows Eat Weeds, and, and they basically have trained cattle. So instead of forcing them, we basically, we force the cattle to consume the the the, the weeds by putting them in to paddocks, experimental paddocks, and then basically saying, okay, you're going to eat this. You're not leaving till you leave, you know, till, till you eat your broccoli and your Brussels sprouts. But in Montana, they've done work where they've played around with cow psychology, where they basically would take Canada thistle, 
and chop it up into pieces and then they would dose it with molasses and they'd feed it to animals. And so they would basically, what they're doing is they're doing cognitive reprogramming. They're training animals to realize that they can eat thistle and that it's an okay thing to eat. And then after they've done this for a while, they'll turn the animals out and they'll go and deliberately eat the thistle. So th there's all kinds of approaches. Now, do you really want to bring all your animals in and, and chop up thistle and then feed it to them? And But the, the whole point is how psychology, um, there is a whole element to cow psychology and how we achieve it, whether we force them through high density or whether we train them to be able to understand that, hey, that food item is actually good. And even though it might prickle your mouth at times, it's actually okay. And the other beauty about, you know, with our rotational system is that there was, even if there were a few thistle plants in there, they were always small. I never presented that data, but we staged all of the thistle plants that were in there. We knew whether they went to flower, whether they produce seed, we knew whether they were rosettes. And when, when these thistle plants are little, they're, they're actually quite palatable. They'll deliberately go out. And I'm sure everyone has seen a cow in the pasture, you know, munching away on a young thistle plant. The problem is when those thistle plants become bigger because they get lignified. And it's it's the difference between trying to grab a mature thistle plant in your garden with your bare hand, which I've done, and I would recommend against it, or a young thistle plant. I, I'll gladly grab the young thistle plants. I just put my hand underneath, and I pull them out with my bare hand. But the mature plants, they're highly, highly unpalatable. So again, if, if it's a matter of training animals, if they figure out early on that the young plants are okay to eat, they're more likely to eat them, and then you get accelerated control over time. So there's all kinds of different strategies that people can use. Thank you. That's very, very interesting. I, When you say the young thistle plants, I was walking through the corrals and I noticed a few little guys, and we have a few cattle in there, so I'll have to see if they munch on those. But um, if Alex, you close the gate and force them to eat them, they will. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a brand new bull. So he he's uh, he's in there for a day or two. So um, Alex is asking on the stocking rate, 70 percent over how many days or what time frame? It, it was three to four days. So they were they were relatively they were pulsed grazing for three to four days. So, and it was very characteristic that on day one, you know, we, we, we'd get them in there and they would eat, they would eat only grasses on day one, day two, they mostly grasses. And then they would maybe start picking at the odd, you know, the thistle plants. Day three, they'd kind of be staring at us going, now what, aren't you going to let us out? And we're like, no. And so <laughs> we got most of the damage, especially on the heavier thistle infestations early on on day three and four. That's when we really did the damage to the thistle. Now, what was interesting is by the end of year three, remember that was a three-year trial where we did this year over and over and over. So in the HILF in year one, I think we had two, maybe three grazing bouts, right? Because there's six week recovery in between. By the year three, there was no thistle really left in there. And so ironically, we would just open the gate and the cattle would rush into those paddocks because they were the greenest, the lushest with no thistle. They couldn't wait to get into them. And I thought, well, that's interesting because ecological engineering, they were the engineers. They actually created the perfect pasture. 
And here they are benefiting from it three years later. That, so, um, yeah, yeah, so it was three to four days. Hopefully that answered is your, your question now. Three to four days. And, and there is a fine line there. If you're in a drier area, maybe only go three days. If you're in a really productive area, maybe you need to go four or five, right? Thank you. I, I think that does ask, answer him. Um, Grant is asking, please say the amounts again of each herbicide used with glyphosate compared as wiped on. Okay, the only ones I remember off the top of my, so the Roundup was 33%, so one third. The, the Lontrell is 2.3% because that one stands out to me because it was a very expensive product. And if Grant wants the other two, I got to look them up because they're in my publication, but I don't have them off the top of my head. I'm thinking they're somewhere around 4 to 5% for the Grazon, I believe. And that the, I believe the Dival DS is somewhere around six to eight. But if don't quote me on that. If Grant wants it, he just reach out to me. I'll get the numbers. I can get the exact numbers because they're they're in my publication. They're in the oh, paper. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, he yeah. has one last question, and then we better uh, wrap it up. I believe um, Ed's going to pop back on. Um, he's asking. You have done work with aspen or poplar and tensile strength to graze and control. Any advice? Yeah, so, so that my whole thistle project um, and, and the work on rotational grazing really comes on the heels of the work that Art Bailey did for 35 years, basically looking at how to control aspen encroachment. Uh, and, and of course, he did most of his work at Kinsella, but he looked at integrated control as well. He looked at herbicides, aerial spraying, he looked at fire, and then he looked at grazing. And he found the exact same notion that you can use grazing as a form of biological control to control aspen regrowth, including after fire. You know, when you get, you burn these aspen stands and then you get the real high sucker densities. So the, the, the key difference here is with aspen is that aspen being a woody species, it lignifies. So basically you get this very young, tender uh, shoot growth in the month of May, which is actually very, very palatable and pretty high quality. And, and the palatability is okay still in June, but then what happens in sometime in July, and it depends where you are and how dry it is, that those plants start to take the new growth and turn it into wood. It undergoes lignification. So it goes through chemical transformation to a much less palatable and much less nutritious substrate. And so if you are going to use the same logic to, in other words, cattle grazing to control um, aspen, aspen suckers, aspen regrowth, you need to really think about the difference between spring slash early summer use as opposed to fall use. So you're going to get a lot less utilization of aspen in the month of August and September and October. So in that case, you need to do it early, 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 early. That's when your best bet is. And, and that's the, the trade-off here is the earlier you hit your grassland, the more damage you're going to do to the aspen, 
but the more damage you're potentially going to do to your grasses as well. And if you got native grasses, you might even be even more concerned. So there, there's a you're walking a fine line between trying to to get control, force control through defoliation on the aspen while not damaging your pasture. And and that is, you know, that's where art and science blend together, as every producer knows. That's a very good point. And I can think of a few places already that my head's picturing that. And like you said, the fine line of taking out the species you want to, but not the species you don't. So yeah. um, excellent, excellent answers. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you everyone for taking the time. I know May is a very busy month and for yourself, Dr. Bork, for all your helpful information. And I believe our other Ed, Ed Shaw, is going to close us out. Well, thank you, Dr. Bork. That was very insightful and a lot of things there that uh, kind of clicks and makes sense and puts things together. So thank you very much for your, your time and effort and, and your dedication to this. Uh, this is, as I said, a series of, uh, of uh, webinars that we'll be doing and it will be available in a podcast. One of the things I would like to say is that everybody is familiar with the uh, disastrous fires that are happening in many parts of the province. Uh, the Department of Agriculture now is, is uh, starting to want to highlight the fact that there could be some forage shortages. And they've contacted uh, AFIN and through our, our, our Farming the Web, uh, there will be some information put out there for those farmers that need forages or those farmers that have forages that may be able to help out in these distressed areas. So if you have any questions, uh, uh, please look at, uh, at Rope in the Web or contact Alberta Agriculture. There, there's probably, they're working on a plan to try to, to offset any uh, uh, problems in that area. So again, I want to thank everybody for attending tonight. And uh, we look forward to you uh, next week or next month in our, our next series. So thank you very much and uh, have a good evening. Thank you. Good night. Good night.